All right. Good to go? All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Sorry to cut you off talking. Uh, <laughs> um, we'll see if anybody else comes in and you online. Good to glad you're with us this morning. And um, as always, we have a good bit to go through in this text particularly. Um, this text has to do with glory. And the Lord is very jealous for his own glory, uh, so much more than anything else. And this is fitting because he is worthy of no less than all glory. And um, this text is utterly unique. We see a few of the same things through, in occasions throughout Scripture. Jesus is doing a lot of the same things uh, out of what the Messiah was going to be, healing the blind and, and so forth. We see a lot of miracles and a lot of repeats, a lot of repeat teaching, but this event is singular, outstanding, remarkable, even among the mark- remarkable that, of him that we've witnessed. All of it's remarkable. But this is singular. So our time today will be spent qualifying all this. And um, so, Father, as we come into this text, this is a scene that you yourself came into. You had all the main characters of the scripture in one place and you yourself came and authenticated and authorized your son help us to leave with having seen by faith what they saw with their eyes and regard you and revere you as worthy of all For your wonderful name, we pray. Amen. All right, so I put a lot of weight on this text because um, I read in a commentary that between his, other than his birth and his passion, the birth and the passion, this is the most significant event that we have in our Gospels. It's in all three uh, synoptic Gospels, and John writes about it in his own, well, it's, he writes at the beginning of, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, that we have seen his glory. We'll get into that. Um, so let's just jump in. Verse 28 of chapter 9 of Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, after what he said last week. Last week was about putting self off, putting him on. It's about the cross. It's about self-denial, becoming, as John the Baptist said, less and less, that he might become more and more uh, the way to... Uh, progress in the kingdom of God is not through like ladder climbing. It's not through um, uh, doing the works of promoting ourselves. Um, you want to become less. You want to become more. You become less. That's what our message last week was, and I didn't get to it because we had such a good conversation last week. And want to. I hope that happens again. And something I wanted to read last week, just to reiterate before we jump into this week. Uh, because it says, after these sayings. So the scripture is just kind of reiterating itself. 
putting by saying these sayings, putting those sayings back in the minds of uh, the one who continues reading, Luke's reader, Luke's readers who are us today. There's this poem, and all of us have probably heard of it, by uh, William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus. Heard that? This is the great middle finger to God. <laughs> and this is what we're to deny of ourselves. This is what he writes. And this is, I got this from a, a Desiring God article, which I love, Desiring God. Um, and this is Invictus Redeemed. And I wanted to share this last week, and just so oh, I will this week, just because I, I don't want not to share it. This is what William writes. Invictus is a Latin word for unconquered. He writes these four stanzas. Out of the night that covers me, black as pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. So this poem, I'm just reading here from this article just for segment of it. This poem has inspired millions, famous and infamous alike, and drawn courage from it. Nelson Mandela recited it on his darker days in prison. Timothy McVeigh invoked it as he received a lethal injection after murdering 167 people in Oklahoma City bombing. And then the, further in the article it says, self-centered, self-exalting, courageous resolve is not greatness, as this poet thinks. It's greatness perverted. And a woman came along and wrote in the 20th, in the earlier part of the 20th century, her name was Dorothy Day. She responded to Henley's manifesto with this poem that she titled, Conquered. Out of the light that dazzles me, Bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the malice of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from my punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. It's Invictus Redeemed. It's a short article, and it's a good one um, from Desiring God, Invictus Redeemed. It's a short little read. I encourage you to go read it. I just wanted to place that before you today before we go in.
It's because it says, after saying these things, Jesus is making this point with the words that he's saying about taking up our cross. And he'll be making that point next week and the week after. So it's pretty important, this uh, chapter 9 of the book of Luke. It's all about pulling back self, putting forward, or putting on Christ. So now with that... <laughs> Now, about eight days after these sayings, uh, Matthew and Mark say six days. Um, so this is where we run into an area where we need to seek and find. Because um, this is where the scripture appears to contradict itself. But here is what scholars and what I think from reading their work <laughs> um, is, is, is happening here. They go up six days. This event happens on day eight. So there's no error. They're up there for a few days. Okay. Um, now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. The other disciples he leaves at the bottom, we'll see what they're up to uh, next week and what they're dealing with next week. And it's kind of a, when you read it, it feels like a scene of chaos and Jesus isn't there, they're by themselves. And they're not managing well, which is next week's point. Um, but he takes up Peter, John, and James. These are called the inner circle. Uh, some have called these Jesus' best friends. Um, Paul calls them the pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9. It was these three uh, that Jesus keeps separating them a few weeks ago. If you remember when they went in to bring the dead child back to life. Peter leaves everybody outside and takes these three in again. And they're with him uh, in Mark's gospel. Um, at the end, it's these three in another circumstance. Um, these, the inner three. Um, it was these three that confirmed, humanly speaking, Paul's apostleship and exhorted him to service in the will of God for Paul's specific ministry to the Gentiles. These three go on to the Jews, as they were called to. Paul is called the Apostle of the Gentiles. He goes on in other, to other places. These three confirm, having been with Jesus, yeah, this guy was with Jesus. They know Jesus, and so they can recognize him in Paul and say, yeah, it's, go. This is what we see, too. We see, we see him in you. Uh, these three were granted to witness specific things to give testimony to for the church. This, the transfiguration, they witness by grace and by their testimony, we witness it in their writings and bear witness by faith what they saw with their eyes. Jesus strengthens our faith by their witness of him. Peter writes in 2 Peter, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths like, this wasn't something that was made up. This wasn't uh, some ideology that just it took root and came up really quick. This was God. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesties. Writing about this event we're reading about today in Luke. For when, we for when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Remember during the sermon, during the text, God comes and speaks. 
the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. God the Father speaking out of the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we have and we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts knowing that I'll read this too knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation the apostles didn't make this up um, so how's that for cleverly devised myths we do not have this in this book this book is not a cleverly devised myth it was written by man but was not created by him and then John writes in 1st John he's who I witnessed to he's among the group 1st John or no sorry uh, the gospel of John 1 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory of the one a glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth so why why does Jesus allow them this John answers that too in first John that which was from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life after everything I just said you put his name Jesus that which was from the beginning Jesus which we have heard Jesus which we have seen with our eyes Jesus which we have looked upon Jesus and touched with our hands Jesus concerning the word of life Jesus that life was made manifest and we have seen to it and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also so that you this is the so that this is why Jesus takes them up there they have fellowship with them they make their witness credible so we can have fellowship with them so that you too may have fellowship with us, with us, with God. And indeed our fellowship, here it is, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy might be complete. So their witness, our faith, his glory. That's something to write down. It's their witness for our faith, for his glory. He lets them witness to be credible witnesses so that all who believe through their message may have a credible, authentic faith. And Jesus prays for this in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their disciples. He's praying for his church at large and everyone who would ever believe in him. This is what it means to be built on the rock of a firm foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, the God therein. And the firm foundation, everything between Acts and 
Revelation, the apostolic teaching, who believe in me through their word. So that, and this confirms the New Testament of Scripture as well, so that they may be one. God wants us to have the same oneness God has with God. We got some work to do. That's why he brings them up on the mountain to see this. And there's more too. But for us in this room today is why he brought Peter, James, and John up there through what we would read of them, what we just read of them. So, in a way, we're on the mountain with them now by faith. That's the thought. And God is just as present here as he was then. They know unmistakably, they now unmistakably know his perfect being as well as his perfect works, that he's holy. As 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, no darkness in him at all. I spend a lot of time there, but see, what is this, what is this happening? What's happening now? Like authentic witness from the authentic witnesses to and of the authentic Christ produces authentic repentance and yields authentic faith and, uh, and by authentic grace for authentic salvation and authentic justification and authentic sanctification and will one day give way to authentic glorification and worship. So let's witness now. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Uh, Matthew and Mark say transfigured. Luke is careful not to say that word. Luke is, uh, Luke is Greek. Luke is a Gentile. In uh, Greek and, and, and Gentile writings, uh, there, there, there was a translation where a god would make itself known and be transfigured. So Luke doesn't use that word he, to, to, so that Jesus doesn't get lumped in with all the Greek gods. He uses, he's careful, and he says, his face was altered, where Matthew and Mark use the word. They're writing to Jews. Luke is not. In this day and age, they, would, they might read that as, Luke is just careful. It says his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. The Greek word there is gleaming, like a bolt of lightning. I think Matthew says, uh, as bright as the sun. Mark says, was uh, white as no launderer could launder, or no bleach could accomplish. All to say, this, this was a unique light. This is This is the glory of God. And behold, two men were with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. That word glory means a few things in the Bible. It means the light, like the, the Shekinah glory that comes off of God's presence. It could mean honor, the, 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 the honor that God is due, praise, rejoicing, the worthiness that we ascribe to him. We give him glory uh, and worship. And it, it means weight. Glory means weightiness, like the absolute weight of God coming to bear in a place. Like I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and if you read the first few chapters, you see this blazing, holy, glorious God. And you don't know what you're reading, really. It's, but 
but what you, one thing is unmistakable, and that's this, the immensity, this weightiness of this God who comes forth in front of Ezekiel. And uh, all of that, the, 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 like the immensity of God, they see with their little eyes. Verse 31, he appeared in glory. We're talking about mm -hmm. Moses and yes. Elijah, right? Yes, they appeared so in there. they already been glorified, or are they having a conversation, the three of them, about mm -hmm. the death that Christ is going to mm -hmm. go to when he goes to Jerusalem? Yeah. But they're there on the mount, and also you have the three apostles. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that Peter is asleep mm -hmm. in a deep sleep. Yeah. So he's really not witnessing it until he wakes up and he sees these three figures. Luke gives us the detail that these two, Moses and Elijah, excuse me, were on their on their way out. They were they were kind of leaving the scene. He didn't really know what was going on. And so he wakes up and And so he's quick to respond with in Peter-like right, fashion. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and they were they were with him speaking as well. I don't know the state they were in if they were have they were, they, were, they received their heavenly bodies yet. Like throughout the scripture, when someone views God's glory. Um, they can't see it. Uh, they can't. They, 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 it takes a resurrected body with new eyes, with the capability to look at God, which we will receive at the resurrection. So I don't know if they're in that state. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just said they appeared with them in glory. They, they, they came from where they were for a moment. They departed from heaven for a moment. They have this conversation. departure, so they knew what was going to happen to to an extent, then the Bible says in First Peter writes, the angels long to look into these things, like, so the angels are just watching the events of uh, Jesus' ministry of bated breath as well, like, what's he going to do? It's not, it's not like God had a meeting in heaven and said, this is, this is, this is, this is going to happen. It was in the mind of God and the heart of God, planned, solid, complete, and I don't know how much information Moses and Elijah were privy to, but enough to have a brief conversation with Jesus. Um, so, and but the, the word I want to put here, uh, which was which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word accomplish, like it doesn't say he was about to attempt. It doesn't say he was about to try. It says he's about to accomplish. This is a sure thing. Redemption is a sure thing. So we who have doubt bantering us. That's good for us to know because all he was about to accomplish with his suffering and his death was not a defeat, it's victory. They're talking about it. Jesus did more with his death than the sum total of humanity would ever be capable of with their life. And so it's, it's a sure thing, our salvation. And God wants you to have 
assurance of salvation because he did the sure works of it. It can give you a confidence in time of doubt that he accomplished this. He accomplished our salvation, and so he should, that by faith should accomplish our assurance. That's saving faith. It's faith that perseveres. The mark of saving faith is that that faith perseveres regardless of what happens. Even if it's weak at times, it keeps going. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. This, is, this also is what shows us that they've been up here for a time, a few days. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So the Jewish custom at the time was to build tabernacles. These were booths. They had the festival of the tabernacles that God instituted that they carry out uh, in Leviticus 23. Um, this is, this is, they're going to do this every year. They did this um, to live in them for seven days. That was, it's pretty much like all Israel gets together and they have, they camp out for seven days to kind of reenact, relive, and remember the bondage they've been brought from. That's important. Um, and this story right here is a, a direct parallel of the Exodus itself, of that whole out of Egypt into, through the waters, through and on to the promised land. This is happening in many form here, which we'll talk about. And this is actually a much bigger exodus than what happened in the book of Exodus. The, that was a, the, the entire decades of that, of God accomplishing that and all those mighty works are a foreshadowing of what Jesus is accomplishing in his ministry. So it's possible that Peter wished to prolong his experience, but his words wrongly implied equality among these three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Three tabs, or three tabernacles meant Jesus would not be worshipped exclusively, and that Moses Elijah, and Elijah were on the same level. We'll talk about that more in a moment. As he was saying these things, now God the Father interrupts Peter. And the interruption is more than just about interrupting Peter. God is interrupting human misconception. This is not about man or any benefit man might receive. This, the salvation of the church as a whole and individually, is first and foremost about the glory of God. The only reason God does anything is because and for his own namesake, not our good first. His glory, and I'll give you a moment here, his glory is, his own namesake is his driving focus. If you read Psalm 23, um, just the first few verses. 
Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So, the, and, and again, um, what, do, what do you have in here? What, just in those verses, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but do you have uh, shepherding? I shall not want. Every, I'll be satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives us rest. He leads me besides still waters. Uh, he's leading in a peaceable way. Uh, he restores. We get restoration. He leads me in paths of righteousness. We're made righteous, acceptable before him. All for his namesake. And it keeps going on to say all these wonderful benefits that we get from him. In Ezekiel 20 in chapter 36, all the events of salvation, yes, they're for us, but they're for him. The new heart that we receive is a heart for him. It's not for us. His love just doesn't detonate on us. It just doesn't drive down to us and stay in like this dead end place. It's supposed to go on. It's a bigger love. It's a better love than he just loved us for us primarily. He doesn't, God is, does not make an idol out of his people. God loves his people with a love so much bigger than we're able to appreciate and savor. And it's a good thing that God loves himself and his glory more than us. Because as we've said before, if he loved us more than his glory, he would break his own first commandment and be a sinner. less of God's love but more because who am I that you are mindful of me David asks and David who wrote all these psalms who got to all these mountaintop experiences um, and these mountaintop experiences produce these praise and worship that we're still singing today that's the love of God so don't think less of the love of God don't be we should be all the more loving of God knowing that he ourselves miserable when everything's about us, don't we? We want it, and then we have it, and then we find ourselves wanting. Because he created us for him. Created us for his and our joy, our joys to be found in him. He, the reason he says, let my people go uh, to Pharaoh so they may come and worship me. That's where we find our greatest being, our greatest positioning when everything is just Godward and focused in that direction. The consumer Christian who comes to church for whatever they get out of it is the most miserable one. The Christian who comes here to get God and love God and serve God and his people who put off self are joyful regardless of anything. As long as they get God for God, just give me God. Sweep away all the minutiae and secondary things. Just give me him. It's not about all the secondary and all the things that we get. It's not even about the benefits which we get. More good news. 
We get God. Jesus died to restore us to God, not just put us in joy, but joy in God. And we error when we want all the benefits and no giver of them. And Jesus' mission was to restore us to God and give us God and satisfy us in him. The great human problem is we don't want him. We believe, as Peter shows here, we love the conclusions we come to, to the foregoing of God's way so as to self-satisfy and remain autonomous. And the good news is that God interrupts that thought. And that's what a Christian is. One who, in that interruption, follows the interrupter. Rich? Yes. Uh, when I'm thinking about, he was on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. Mm -hmm. And they were talking. Mm -hmm. Moses represents the law. Mm -hmm. Elijah represents the prophets. Yes. And they all pointed to Christ. This is done with. Mm -hmm. Now, this, hear him. Mm -hmm. he, he fulfilled the law. Mm -hmm. He fulfilled the, the prophecy. They, that's what they were talking about. Yep. It's my turn now. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yes. She introed our next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's where we're going. Yep. Oh, Keeping us on base. Yep. I was going to mention that too. Well, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, you mentioned something about the boots. Yes. In the scriptures, are you saying then this pertains to the to this? Because yeah. what happened was Peter is the only one that speaks out. James and John's not speaking, mm -hmm. and he says, "Oh, we'll build the, we'll build three booths." So was he trying to make all three equal? Jesus so what was, I was yeah. At, what I was getting at was, he didn't know what he was saying. Right. And then that's when God in very Peter-like fashion the yeah. opens up and says, "We can't. We don't get saved by images. I mean, I can look at that picture over here. Mm -hmm. uh, so somebody put that there for that purpose. But but man does that when 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 you're a good president." They make a great statue of you, and you're, oh, yeah. and, and you know, that's why I think the way Peter was thinking. Mm -hmm. It's human nature. Peter. So anyway, that, yeah. he didn't know what he was saying, but no. was he lining it up with booths? He was saying, um, "Let's make a, a tent, a booth, a tabernacle right, for each one of you." He saw Jesus as one of the greats right. in right, in right. in uh, in biblical history. Jesus is in the same line. As, as the greats of the past, and we're going to see okay, okay. that he <laughs> he's not one of the greats. He's he's the great. <laughs> yeah. So a cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the crowd. As they as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, "This is my son, God the Father." authenticates his identity, identifies him as his own. Jesus would say, God has sent his only begotten son. That means one in the likeness of, being of, nature of. This is of me. That's what God's saying here. And identifies Jesus as this. My chosen one. His relationship with God as God. His role as Messiah. This is his purpose. This is God's choice. Hebrews 1 is kind of about that. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
So he endorsed him, gives him authority, God's verification as God the Son, and what to do with it. Listen. This isn't anywhere else. Conjuring these, uh, giving a calling our faith and our obedience. Faith and follow. And second, the Father's authentic authentication is their authorization. All who would believe through their message. Moses was the figurehead of the law. Elijah was the figurehead of the prophets. Peter, James, and John were the apostolic pillars, figureheads of the New Testament. So what do you have here? You have the Old Testament and New Testament all together on this mountain right here. Law and the prophets and apostolic. And you have Jesus right here. In, what does Jesus say in John 5, uh, 39? The scriptures bear witness to me. Everything in the Old Testament pointing towards, anticipating, everything in the New Testament looking back, this is what happened. Keeps the entire Bible, start to finish, is about this Jesus. Is about Jesus. Our entire church service and lyrics. All of it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The right answer for everything here. What's your favorite color? Jesus. Okay? So you have all of these. And when the voice had spoken, Moses and Elijah had had their time to speak. Now, God gets the final word. They were departing. The apostles stay there. Their time has passed. The time of the old covenant, the, it's time to live according to the new covenant. It's, uh, it's, uh, Jesus is fulfilling all of that, giving us the ability to understand and obey what we're to obey of it and obeying him. Jesus is greater, and Jesus was found alone. Jesus is greater than all, and alone is sufficient. Alone is worthy. Alone is righteous. Alone is Lord. Alone is Savior. Alone is able. Christ is the only one who is worthy of worship, praise, rejoicing, and of glory. The only one able to redeem, to save, deliver, forgive, heal. He's sovereign over time and eternity, life and death, all existence, spiritual and, and physical. So Jesus is left there standing alone because he's the only one worthy to. He's greater than the law, greater than the prophets. And this is the great pillar of Reformed theology, the great explicit clarification of the Bible. Christ alone. This is the truth we so easily miss for all the other stuff that's pointing to this, that we take it for itself. All, and this is what we miss or add to or take from. And there's this saying that came out of the Reformation. This is, if you're going to get a tattoo, here it is. Uh, we were saved by through faith in, by, in Christ according to scripture for the glory of God. I wish I had a whiteboard, a whiteboard so I could circle all the substance, words, faith, grace, <laughs> faith, Christ, scripture, 
glory. Those are the five solas. Um, and then all the action words, the by, through, in, according to, for. We were saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to scripture, for the glory of God. Moses and Elijah, by their appearance, presence, and disappearance, validate Jesus as God the Messiah, as greater than the law and the prophets, by being the only one left, enduring, the eternal one, everlasting one. All this emphasis, emphasis points to this. The Father's statement give the Father's statements, brief as they are, give man permission, indeed commands us to put our faith in Jesus. So who does that tell us Jesus is? Because Isaiah 42, 8 says, I will not share my glory with the with another, declares the Lord. There is number, he says, there is none before me, none after me. This is it. And look at the specific quality and volume of glory that Jesus receives. Uh, now in Revelation, all of heaven glorifies him and the Father himself honors him. So this is God validating God. You read Hebrews 1, you'll see it a few times there too. He can, he can be no other. Look at his uniqueness. He's in a category all his own. This is a man, or this is a many and more massive story of the Exodus as well. God comes and brings He brought Moses up the mountain. He was up there six days, he said. Matthew, Mark, they're up there six days. This happens on day eight, uh, according to Luke. That's what I think. That's what I could be wrong about that. Um, and there's so, there's so many parallels here that signal to us that this is the new Exodus. Rescued from their bondage of Egypt, we're rescued from our bondage of sin, the greater Exodus. kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Um, but they remember, they write about it in their epistles and their gospels. Uh, I mean, Matthew understands from what they experience. He writes it in his gospel. Mark, uh, Peter dictates Mark's gospel. Mark is the scribe that writes it. Um, and so the transfiguration we see is from Peter's perspective in Mark. Luke writes it as interviewing the people who were actually there. John puts it in his prologue, we have seen his glory. He doesn't focus on the transfiguration himself. He just says he, he's, he's a credible witness for everything we're about to read. They write about the, 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 the effects of this last lifetime in them as you see them in their epistles. Peter specifically, again, as we read in 2 Peter, writing about this. This is where we see Jesus for who he is. He pulls back the cloak of his humanity and reveals his divinity. So what do we learn today? And they'll talk about it later. Matthew's gospel tell, tells us Peter, uh, that Jesus commanded them after restoring them, because this was a lot for them to handle. He came up and they were terrified. And he, he encouraged them, touched them. 
stood them back on their feet, so to speak. Um, but we saw it. Yeah. Don't tell anybody yet. <laughs> and that there's a time when they couldn't you know shut up I mean? about this. And I'm just yeah. saying that the whole thing is the word is so true. Yeah. If we look at it that way, in, instead of saying, how do we know? I mean, Matthew wasn't there. Yeah. He, he He's said, on the bottom of the mountain. And I'm just, yeah. saying, I'm just saying how wonderful the word is. Yeah. And it's all from God. Mm-hmm. It, it can't be made up. No, it's not a, like it's Peter said, it's not cleverly contrived myth. Derived myth. Yes. James and John up a mountain, a little camping trip. (laughs) Yeah, and they don't know they're about to relive the Exodus in a way. And God, instead of giving them the law, gives them Christ, gives us grace. We live, don't we? Don't live according to the law, we live according to grace now. Um, He's transformed, and they behold his glory. Moses, the figurehead of the law, and Elijah's the Jesus is one of the greats. God the Father shows up and gives Jesus a singular approval. Pure reverence drops them. Jesus restores them. And they look to find he alone remains. Christ alone. It wasn't intentional, but I'm pretty sure Christ alone is the summation or the provided the only one we need and he's perfectly perfectly sufficient and worthy of all of our faith help us to live like that's true because it very much is help our faith help us um, walk in that confidence and boldness of you being everything that you are and loving us in spite of us and giving us Mercy, coming to you in boldness to 
receive mercy and find grace, as your word says. May it produce fruit in our lives, because this is true. Stamp it, seal it on our hearts, as you stamped in your glory on the memories of the people who wrote about it. Do that for us by faith today, by your grace through faith today. It's for your wonderful.